of Acts chapter 16, reading verses 35 through 40. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray that as I preach it, that uh, You would be pleased to quicken the Word to our hearts, sanctify us, and uh, glorify Your name through this portion of the worship in which we wor- uh, this worship service that we bring to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Patrick Henry was riding into the small town of Culpeper, Virginia when Uh, He saw something, this was back in 1775, saw something that turned his stomach, just made him sick. He saw a minister that was tied up to a whipping post and uh, he was in the process of being beaten with a whip that was all laced with um, uh, metal pieces. And Patrick Henry wrote, when they stopped beating him, I could see the bones of his ribcage. I turned to someone and asked what the man had done to deserve such a beating as this. And the reply was that he was a minister of the gospel who was preaching without a license from the government. There were 11 others who were in jail, and three days later they were scourged to to death. This is in America, you know, the year before the uh, war for independence, and it was for preaching. We're not that far removed from the book of Acts. Okay, that wasn't uh, that many... Uh, years ago. And this incident put fire into the bones of Patrick Henry to resist tyranny with everything that was in him. And he went around the country defending some of these ministers who were uh, being tried in this way by uh, the the tyrants who were in, in, in office at that time. And what he was doing is he was using the law against those tyrants much as Paul was using the bureaucratic uh, laws of Rome uh, against the tyrants in this chapter. And it took courage for Patrick Henry to do this because tyrants don't like to be stymied. And it took Paul uh, courage as well uh, to be uh, asserting his civil rights in this chapter. Now, there are very few people in any generation who are really uh, willing to uh, stand up like this, who have the guts to stand up to the government. And so the title of today's sermon is Civil Rights Asserted. And I want to begin picking on the citizens because I think it's largely the citizens who are at fault for the erosion of civil rights in our own uh, country today. We like to speak against some of the tyrants in office, and they are to blame. But really, even tyrants can only go so far if there is a a very self-disciplined and very informed citizenry. Usually, citizens get what they deserve in the government. Now, there's three problems I want to look at that I see with the citizens in these verses. Verse 19 shows citizens asking the government to intervene in their economic losses. It says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, these investors had suffered an economic loss. This happens all the time in a free market system. Now, in this case, it was because of the preaching of the gospel that uh, they were uh, having their businesses a little bit hurt. But Luke says it was an economic concern that drove them. The first instinct of these investors uh, when they suffer uh, economic problems is not to compete fairly on an even playing field. Uh, Instead, they go to the government to solve their problem. And the sad thing is that many Americans do the same today. They agree with licensing because... They know it's going to protect their interests. Now, they're probably not going to say that this is selfishly to protect our interests. They're going to say, like these businessmen did, this is for the good of the people as a whole. And, um, and yet, really, a licensing does not do that. Modern Americans want political freedom, but they also want economic security, not realizing that when you want both of those, eventually you're going to erode both the economic and the political liberties that you have. Ludwig von Mises exposes this schizophrenic thinking when he said, the idea that political freedom can be preserved in the absence of economic freedom and vice versa is an illusion. Political freedom is the corollary of economic freedom. Uh, A statist government is usually a reflection of a statist people. We see this all around us when mortgage companies make bad loans to uh, people. What's the first thing people call an economic crisis? This is a national crisis and they ask the government to bail them out to the tune of billions of dollars, forgive parts of these loans. And um, it's a really crazy uh, thinking. If automakers lose money, uh, they you know, snivel to the government that this is going to make massive unemployment and that they need to be bailed out. Uh, when steel mills can't compete against Japan, they try to use the tax system to penalize the, the Japanese and do away uh, with uh, some of the competition. Human nature does not change. And this verse simply reflects an age-old love of the citizenry for a messianic state. But with such economic security being provided, there is increasing political control. And I think America is falling into exactly this trap right now. Second thing I blame the citizens for is that they wanted the civil government to promote class interests. Look at verses 20 through 21. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. They are pitting one class against another class. Now, of course, there was legal precedent that they could appeal to, and that was the a decree the previous year that uh, uh, the Emperor Claudius had given that was discriminating against the Jews. And we talked about that before. But based on that, the citizens here do not allow Paul and Silas to even have time to defend themselves. The group politics has already poisoned their minds uh, to uh, these people. And so Paul and Silas not even given the opportunity to explain their exempt, their Roman citizens. Uh, These citizens bank on a common sinful tendency in humans to like people who are similar to them and to dislike people who are different from them. Uh, They wanted justice for themselves, but they were denying justice uh, to these Jews. Now, when you do that, you play right into the hands of tyrants. Uh, Back in the 1700s, Thomas Paine said, 
He that would make his own liberty secure must guard even his enemy from oppression. For if he violates this duty, he establishes a precedent that will reach to himself. In other words, when you play group politics, it will eventually come back to bite you. And you can see this in ancient Rome. Uh, what happened initially is that Rome began to do, you know, ignore laws because there were unpopular subgroups that they were uh, wanting to deal with and they got away with that. But eventually what happened is liberties began to be eroded more and more so that these same laws were beginning to be ignored with Roman citizens and eventually the senators themselves uh, began to have these uh, rights, civil rights taken away from them. Promoting class interests of any kind always backfires. And I think America would do well to heed this because there's all kinds of class laws and group-based uh, laws. There are laws protecting certain economic interests, uh, racial interests. There's homosexual lobby, a Muslim lobby. There's a Jewish lobby. And this uh, really isn't new. America should never have discriminated against blacks, for example, and in the early years, there were some states where they had uh, perfect justice and there were some where that was not true. Uh, a black citizen should have had all the rights of any citizen. And even if he was not a citizen, he should have had the same justice that anybody else uh, could, uh, could have. In Deuteronomy 1.16, he says, And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Do not show partiality in judging. And in your outlines, I show verses that demonstrates that the poor were not to be favored over the rich or vice versa. The majority was not to be favored, nor an Israelite, nor an alien. Not even the unempowered were supposed to be given a preferential treatment. The government's job is justice, not group politics. And I'll let you read those verses for yourself. But... If we're going to apply those verses properly, then it means that we cannot support affirmative action for blacks or for other minority groups because it's giving favors to one group over against another based on race. What you're doing is you're answering, you know, maybe a period of discrimination with some more discrimination, but it's just discrimination in another direction rather than answering discrimination with biblical justice. And it's backfired. Now we've got all kinds of groups that are asking for special favors. Women want to have rights that other people don't have. You've got homosexuals who are demanding uh, rights that are special and just unique uh, to them. And, and the list goes on. The government should be blind to color, to economic status, to political position. Moses said, judge the people fairly. Do not show partiality. Follow justice and justice alone. Supreme Court Justice John Harlan said, Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land are involved. Now, I think that's a biblical statement, even though it's been used in unbiblical ways. The third thing that I blame these citizens for is a, an unwillingness to stand up for the civil rights of all. Verse 22 says, Then the multitude rose up together against them, and then the citizens stand by watching as the civil magistrate uh, gives them an unjust beating without a trial. 
Now, they don't worry about it because they don't like the Jews anyway. And so no big deal if they're being denied justice. Uh, I already read uh, Thomas Paine's statement that if we don't stand up for the liberties of our enemies, eventually uh, we're going to lose our own civil liberties. Alan Dershowitz said, I think it was H.L. Mencken who once said that in America they go after the SOBs first and nobody cares about them. They establish bad precedents on them and then they go after the rest of us. And that's exactly right. It is critical that we defend the civil liberties of all, whether they are Muslim, atheists, comedians, whatever. <laughs> okay. Now, <laughs> civil rights means biblical civil rights, not the ridiculous rights that so many people are claiming for themselves nowadays. Neither the Bible nor the Constitution gives an absolute right to free speech. Courts have always said nobody has the, the right to yell fire, you know, in a crowded theater. And that was one uh, case that had come up. They certainly did not see the crime of homosexuality as a civil right, but homosexuals should be accorded the same right to a fair trial as anybody else. Any rights that are truly God-given rights should apply to all. But the tendency is for some to not care if so-called terrorists have not been given a fair trial or habeas corpus or other constitutional rights have been denied. And I think our liberties in America are slipping largely because we've got ignorant evangelicals and other citizens who um, have blind loyalty to the party. If civil rights are being denied to terrorists, nobody squawks. But the question might be asked, how do you know they really were a civil uh, a terrorist? They've never been given a trial. Uh, many um, are in the same situation that Paul and Barnabas are in here. Paul and Barnabas were beaten without a trial. Some of these hapless souls are waterboarded without a trial. Now, there's a debate as to whether it was just one person that happened or there's many. It really doesn't matter whether it's one or a hundred. We should not tolerate such denial of civil rights to anyone, whether they are citizen or non-citizen. And Deuteronomy 1, verse 16 is quite clear on that. Warren Freeton said, Place me not with those who are weak of mind and willingly give up the rights of others, for these poor ignorant souls know not that the rights they give up are their own. In 1748, Montesquieu said, The tyranny of a principle in an oligarchy is not so dangerous to the public welfare as the apathy of a citizen in a democracy. And this is why President Andrew Jackson said, but you must remember, my fellow citizens, that eternal vigilance by the people is the price of liberty and that you must pay the price if you wish to secure the blessing. It behooves you, therefore, to be watchful in your states as well as in the federal government. And so the citizens have a great responsibility to assert their civil rights. Let's look next at the tyrannical action of this colony's magistrates. And we're going to start by looking at how they handled the law. Verse 21 gives the charge that upset the magistrates. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. They appeal to a tyrannical law that was passed by executive order the year before by the Emperor Claudius. So executive orders and tyranny through executive order, that's not a new thing. That's been around for ages and ages. And what he did is he expelled all Jews from Rome, but this was a violation of their constitution and it was a violation of the most fundamental right that Roman citizens had. They didn't give it to other people, but Roman citizens had 
that there must be a fair trial. Now, why did the Senate not stand up to the emperor? Well, probably because many of them were already accustomed to circumventing the law themselves. Their laws were as conflicting and as confusing as modern American law has become. Their tax system was even more confusing than American tax system uh, is. It It was horrible. As Dan Pillow said, a confusing law is one which cannot be complied with. Consequently, it is a law which can be abused, twisted, and misrepresented by those who are in a position of authority with respect to the law. And so what had happened is many in the Senate had become corrupt. They were compromised themselves, and so they could not stand up for principle even when they wanted to stand up for principle. One commentator on public policy said, most people prefer to believe that their leaders are just and fair even in the face of evidence to the contrary, because once a citizen acknowledges that the government under which he lives is lying and corrupt, the citizen has to choose what he or she will do about it. To take action in the face of corrupt government entails risks of harm to life and loved ones. To choose to do nothing is to surrender one's self-image of standing for principles. Most people do not have the courage to face that choice. Hence, most propaganda is not designed to fool the critical thinker, but only to give moral cowards an excuse not to think at all. And I think it's a great commentary on exactly what was happening in this passage. A second thing that I blame the civil government for was that they did not give Paul and Silas the right to self-defense. You've got to realize this was an inalienable right for all Roman citizens. Uh, look again at verses 20 through 22. There's the charge in verses 20 to 21. Then there's the raucous opposition of the multitude in the first part of verse 22. Immediately, the penalty is inflicted. There's no trial. There's no way that they've been able to defend themselves. It appears they didn't even have time to say, hey, hey, I'm a Roman. You can't be doing this to me. It's like off with their shirts and they're beating these people right off the bat. There is no right to self-defense. But I put it to you that this is already happening in America with people who have been merely suspected of being terrorists. In 2006, against the complaints of Senator Leahy and others, the protections of the Posse Comitatus Act and the Insurrections Act, with one stroke of the pen, were done away with. Later, the Military Commissions Act of 2006 suspended the ancient right of habeas corpus, Now, this means that a person who is merely suspected, and boy, this could be abused so bad, merely suspected of being a terrorist could be whisked away from his home in the middle of the night, taken off to a jail. His relatives will never have to be informed of where he is. And you cannot use a court to force the government through habeas corpus to bring this person in to prove that they have a right to hold him in security. It's been completely removed. A pastor could be taken away. You'd never know where he went to. Now, if you think I'm blowing this out of proportion, just read some of the comments that were made by senators and congressmen who were opposed to this. It is really scary stuff. I think it is tyranny, plain and simple. And yet many conservatives applaud. Why? Because they trust their president. They think his motives are good and it's just terrorists they're dealing with anyway, so it should be okay. But even if the motives are, are, not, are, are really good and his intentions and the way he's using it is good, it's still not a good thing. As Milton Friedman said, concentrated power is not rendered harmless by the good intentions of those who create it. James Madison wrote, all power in human hands is liable to be abused. 
It is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. We hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of citizens. And so we can't begin to be accustomed to tyranny in America. We need habeas corpus back. Third thing that I blame these magistrates for was denying the right of cross-examination of the witnesses. Fourth thing that I blame them for is that they treated Paul and Silas as guilty until proven innocent. One of America's most cherished traditions is saying that you are innocent until proven guilty. You don't have that in a lot of countries, but in America, the onus of the burden of proof is upon the plaintiff to prove his case. And uh, you, you don't have the threat of punishment until they've actually proved their case. Now, we still have that in our courts of law. And praise God for that. But this right has been completely taken away by federal agencies. Uh, several of America's agencies have authorized these agencies to impose fines and fees without any trial. They just come. They determine that you're out of accord with whatever their bureaucratic rules are. And they start fining you for that. I was reading some of the debate on this in Congress, and it does appear that OSHA and the IRS take the policy that you are guilty until proven innocent. And once accused, accused excuse me, the burden of proof rests on you to prove your innocence. And until you've proved your innocence, those fines and the interest continues to accrue on what they have penalized you for. Now, thankfully, there are citizens who have stood up for their rights and the Congress has pulled back on some of the more onerous of the, of the um, uh, ungodly uh, positions. I read a very humorous report of the Congressional record, March 15, 1995, that compared King George of 1775 to what was happening in these agencies. And it quotes, you can look at it on, online, but it quotes the Declaration of Independence about King George. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. And then they testified before Congress, said, he, um, this is exactly what Washington, D.C. has done and what this agency has done. OSHA has driven out our, our employees out of business. It has harassed our businesses and operates in conflict with the principles of the Constitution. In fact, our employers and our businessmen and women in this country are guilty until proven innocent. Here is another regulation that will send swarms of new officers into our workplaces, harass our people who are trying to create jobs, keep jobs in this country, and make sense out of an agency that is totally out of control. And yet these things are repeatedly happening in the good old USA. So I hope you can see the book of Acts is very relevant. I mean... Uh, we've got to constantly have vigilance. The fifth thing I blame these magistrates for was giving in to the desires of the multitude to pander to group politics. And I've already talked about that, and I, I think I've said enough. Sixth error they engaged in was to oppose free speech. Verse 21 says, And they teach, this is the crime, And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe one of the fundamental rights of our constitution that's guaranteed to us is the right uh, to free speech now it's been abused by pornographers and and um, gossip magazines and other things like that but that should not sour us to the the right of free speech these citizens did not like the free speech of Paul and Silas it bothered their sensibilities but what i would say is we've got to put up with disagreements with other people if we're going to maintain this right dr uh, Thomas Sowell once said, 
that unless we're willing to tolerate imperfections in others, we will lose our freedoms. He said, as long as human beings are imperfect, there will always be arguments for extending the power of government to deal with these imperfections. The only logical stopping place is totalitarianism, unless we realize that tolerating imperfections is the price of freedom. Now, there's a limit even to that because the Bible's got to describe to what degree you tolerate imperfections. The seventh thing that I blame those magistrates for was the excessive nature of the punishment. Now, we spoke last week of the welts and the bruises and the broken open skin uh, from the severe caning. We spoke of the miserable conditions of the stocks. All that government knows is the use of power. That's what God's given to them, the use of the sword, right? And so we've got to be very, very careful of how much power we give to the government. George Washington is credited with this quote, and I couldn't track it down, so I don't know if it was him or somebody else, but he or somebody like him said, government is not reason and it is not eloquence. It is force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Never for a moment should it be left to irresponsible action. We should hate, we should despise all forms of tyranny and pray for the day when all of the governments of this world will submit themselves to the perfect law of liberty, which is God's law. James calls it the perfect law of liberty. Now quickly compare verses 23 and 35 and you'll see another evidence of tyranny. Arbitrary, apparently changing justice. Let's read verses um, 23 to 24 first. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, the outer prison was for petty crimes, that, and they had a lot more freedom. They could walk around. They could receive visitors uh, like uh, relatives and friends and stuff like that. But the inner prison was for the worst criminals. These were the people who were hardened and uh, very dangerous. And so... Uh, it appears there's going to be further penalties. There's going to be more trial. They're going to really deal with these bad criminals. But take a look at the sudden change in verse 35. When it was day, the magistrate sent the officers saying, let those men go. Now, people have puzzled over this contrast. Why are they all of a sudden letting them go? And there's been many hypotheses that have been put forward. Was it, you know, a guilty conscience over what they had done? Was it a realization that they had not followed the law? Was it superstition over the earthquake? There's a lot of people uh, think, well, maybe the earthquake made them think, we've done something wrong. The gods are angry at us. Um, uh, we're, we're really not told. Maybe they don't want to be bothered with the case anymore. But for whatever reason, justice seems to be changing its definition. If they are as bad as the earlier verses seem to indicate they are, they shouldn't be let go. And if they have been let go, then the punishment that they received was an unjust punishment. Well, it's exactly this kind of uh, inconsistency in our modern justice system that has made some people totally cynical about ever receiving justice. Now, we, we got it far better here and we do still in a lot of other countries. But uh, some people who have committed horrendous crimes get off with a very light treatment and others who have committed very light crimes are treated very, very severely. In fact, uh, Scott has been dealing with a case that's like this where one of the people who actually committed the murder has um, been paroled years ago, I think it was, and the other person sitting in jail, he was just a, a witness. And so pray for him. Uh, this is a situation that needs to be reheard. 
The last area of blame is that there was no interposition of lower magistrates on any level. Now, interposition is where you've got tyranny from a higher magistrate being you know, brought against some citizen and the lower magistrate puts himself, he interposes himself between the higher magistrate and the citizen. It's, it's protecting them. And lower magistrates not only have the right to interpose, they have the duty to interpose themselves when they believe that the higher authority has broken the law. It is something down through history. It is seen as a responsibility that they have. Examples of interposition and nullification would be the Kentucky and the Virginia Resolution, 1798. The Hartford Convention, 1814. South Carolina Ordinance of Nullification, 1832. And there's a whole bunch of others, even where county level, you know, has interposed itself against the state. And so uh, there's various times down through history where interposition has taken care. Now, here, nobody has bothered to say, hey, that's not really legal. Uh, Roman law does not allow this to in any way... Uh, protest what has been happening. They just meekly go along with what the higher magistrate is doing. Look at verse 36. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to, to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Go in peace? Okay. He's almost been beaten to death. What are you talking about? Go in peace. It's very odd that this new believer does not see an inconsistency here. But I think... It's been drilled into his consciousness. You don't question your superiors. You just go along with what has been told to you. And it's not until Paul rebukes him and says, this is not the way it is, that I think his thinking began to change. But Rome did place laws above uh, a magistrate, at least in theory. When Nazi war criminals were tried for torturing their prisoners, what was their excuse? Just following orders, right? Everything we did... Uh, was on the books. We, we followed the law. And the court did not buy that. It uh, insisted that even the state must be subject to law. In fact, uh, way back when they were discussing this whole subject of interposition in early America, there were three assumptions that our founding fathers... No, actually four assumptions that our founding fathers had. The first assumption was that every man, woman, and child is totally depraved and apart from God's grace... They're going to need to have checks and balances to keep these evil tendencies in tension. James Madison said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. Then he goes on to say, but they ain't angels. <laughs> They're self-serving sinners. Well, he didn't say ain't. He had proper grammar. But um, John Adams said this in 1772. There is danger from all men. The only maxim of a free government ought to be to trust no man living with power to endanger the public liberty. Now, those may seem like such cynical words, but it was that Calvinistic worldview that put the checks and balances that gave America the liberties no other nation for centuries has had. The second assumption and read the Founding Fathers, by the way. You're going you're gonna to find references to this total depravity all over the place. It drove their thinking. Okay, second assumption was that no human authority had absolute sovereignty. Only God has absolute sovereignty. Uh, and every other sovereignty in this world was a limited, delegated uh, authority or sovereignty that was given there. 
The third assumption was that all magistrates are therefore subject to the law and they can be judged by that law. And then the fourth assumption was that without self-government and courageous citizens, we're not going to keep this republic very long. In 1798, President John Adams said, Our Constitution was made only for a religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. But I really like what Bertrand de Juvenal said. It's a lot more graphic. He said, A society of sheep must in time beget a government of wolves. A society of sheep must in time begin, uh, beget a government of wolves. Well, Paul shows courage. He shows that he is not a sheeple, as uh, some people call uh, American citizens today. The magistrates could have hushed this whole affair up, perhaps, by killing Paul and Silas. Now, that would have been a risk as well, because if it got out, they could have had the capital penalty for themselves. But uh, it, it was risky for Paul to stand up for his civil rights. Look at verse 37. Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Now, is Paul being pigheaded here? You know, why is he making such a stink about this? Why can't he just be thankful that he's just been beaten and he's still alive? You know, why can't he passively go about his business? That's not the way Paul thought, and it is not the way that we should think. Milton Friedman said, eternal vigilance is required and there have to be people who step up to the plate who believe in liberty and who are willing to fight for it. Thomas Jefferson warned the nation, if once the people become inattentive to the public affairs, you and I in Congress and assemblies, judges and governors shall all become wolves. It seems to be the law of our general nature in spite of individual exceptions. Well, Paul when he tells them what they have done and he asks them to apologize, they are terrified. Uh, one commentator says this, it was a chastened and frightened group of city officials who arrived at the prison shortly afterward, full of apologies, wanting to make amends, begging forgiveness, politely requesting the two injured men to come out of prison and pleading with them to go quietly on their way. I think that's a good summary of verses 38 through 39. Now, why would they be afraid? Well, number one, they broke the Valerian law, which said no Roman citizen could be put into handcuffs, could be beaten, could be put in jail, could be put in stocks, unless he had already had a fair trial and was convicted as guilty. They had broken every aspect of that Valerian uh, law. They'd also broken the Porcian law. According to Roman law, these magistrates could be severely punished. They could be removed from office. The whole city could be reduced in terms of some of its privileges. In fact, it could be taken away. Its colony status could be taken away, which would mean they would lose their tax-exempt status. Well, all of a sudden, you got all the businessmen in that city really upset with you. So everywhere they looked, they would have been afraid. Everybody would have been very mad at them. And so it's no wonder they're afraid. Paul does not ask for the full extent of the law to be brought against these magistrates. He simply asks for a public apology, a public escorting him out of that jail so that the whole community can see their civil rights have been violated. By not pressing charges, Paul is doing them a favor. And by making this apology public, they are doing Paul a favor, as we will soon see. Now, let me outline why I believe uh, what I believe were the fundamental reasons why Paul felt it important to assert his civil rights. First of all, it was biblical to do so. 
Uh, he was standing in a long tradition of prophets and priests and citizens of the Old Testament who stood up against tyranny and did not just passively take it when the government was violating the law. And it's not just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you see the same thing. John the Baptist uh, rebuked Herod for his tyrannies in Luke 3, verse 19. It was biblical. Second, it was the patriotic thing to do. Throughout the book of Acts, you see Paul taking a degree of pride in his Roman citizenship. There is nothing wrong with patriotism so long as it is not a blind patriotism. In fact, I would go so far as to say if you don't resist tyranny, you don't love your country very much and you're not very much of a patriot. Edward Abbey said, A patriot must always be ready to defend his country against his government. The dictionary defines patriotism, not love of your government, but love of your country. Okay? And sometimes that means standing against uh, the civil government. But it takes courage to do that. To assert your civil rights in the face of potential death is a selfless act of courage that is for the good of the community as a whole. Joanne Roach said, When the rights of just one individual are denied, the rights of all are in jeopardy. Now, if that's the case, it is patriotic to stand up for your civil rights. Thirdly, it was a useful thing to do, bringing these magistrates to a duly chastened condition hugely promoted the advancement of the, the gospel in that region. Because uh, if, uh, unless these officials made a public apology, they could feel confident about doing this kind of thing to others in the future. But if they made a public apology, everyone would know about it, and the news would spread to other magistrates in other cities and Paul would be less likely to get a caning without a fair trial in those cities. The fifth reason was that he was going to be leaving some friends behind, and he no doubt wanted to secure some of their religious liberties. The sixth reason was that Paul knew how bureaucrats work. Okay? He, 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 he'd likely use a different strategy when he was working with Nero later, but now he's dealing with petty bureaucrats, and they stay in office by keeping their nose clean, you know, with uh, the higher-ups. And how do they do that? By following the bureaucratic rules. And so Paul is using the rules against the bureaucrats. He's using the laws against uh, these officials. And there are a few people who do so today, but I think America would be a totally different place if there was legion numbers of people who would do this. Dan Pilla has done a wonderful job of using the law against the IRS and teaching other people how to do that. Uh, but it takes knowing the laws inside out to be successful. And Paul shows that he knows the law. At least he's familiar with Roman law. But few people can be experts. And so according to Titus 3, verse 13, Paul found it necessary later on to hire Zenos the lawyer. Apparently there were some issues that were beyond his, as a paralegal, beyond his abilities to uh, deal with. And today we desperately need godly, well-informed, well-trained lawyers who are specializing in various areas of, of law because America's very quickly becoming like Rome, which means we're going to need legal help in the future. One of the areas I'd like to see changes in America is a citizenry who knows the Constitution and is irate because the magistrates are ignoring the Constitution left and right. A Justice William O. Douglas said, the purpose of the Constitution is to keep the government off the backs of the people. But it's not going to do that if the people, the citizens, don't know the Constitution. 
you should be duly chastened if you've never read the Constitution. It is your duty as a citizen to know the law. Like Paul, we need to know at least the basics of the law. And like Paul, we need to assert our civil rights. Let me quickly end with five satisfactory results of Paul asserting his civil rights. First, it set precedent to others that magistrates are not above the law. That is huge. That is huge. Magistrates are not above the law. So it makes the magistrates pull their tailings in a bit. It gives a little bit more boldness to the citizens. Second, it took some of the edge off of the arrogance that they had earlier displayed. And I think verse 38 shows that clearly. Third, it made the magistrates beholden to Paul and Silas, fearful of offending them. Verse 39 says, Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. No demands, simply asking favors. Please, would you leave? They didn't want to get into trouble with Rome, so they're being nice to Paul and Silas, but they didn't want the responsibility of trying to protect Paul and Silas either. Please, would you, would you leave? And it's clear from verse 40 that Paul and Silas are not forced to leave the city because they don't do it right away. They go to Lydia's house. They have a service. They meet with the believers there. And then they leave. And so, to me, it appears that they've worked out kind of a deal with the magistrates. We'll leave the city now and not press charges against you if you leave our community of believers alone. I can't prove that this is the deal that they've worked out there, but I think it's a reasonable reading between the lines. In verse 40, it gives the fledgling church courage and boldness. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now, I want you to notice the word they. This is different now. In verse 10, it says, we sought to go. Luke includes himself as part of the the people. And the we comes up in verse 11, 12, 13, 16. But in verse 40, it says, they left Philippi. They departed. So it appears that Luke has been left behind. Now, there's lots of of, um, uh, conjecture about why he was left behind. In fact, some people have even... Uh, uh, conjectured that he married Lydia and that's why they're still at the house uh, when they left. But we're not told why he left. Uh, It's just we know he was left behind and he stays in Philippi all the way up to Acts chapter 20 when Paul makes a return visit to Philippi and then takes Luke with him on his further uh, journeys. And so uh, what is quite clear here is, and most people conclude this, Luke has been Uh, left behind and he is responsible for this church. He's the one who's made the, the, the church grow like crazy. So here's what's going on. Paul's assertion of his civil rights has hugely opened up liberties for the church to prosper and thrive in the city of Philippi. Let me end by saying that it's not enough to admire Patrick Henry. It's not enough to admire Paul and others who have asserted their civil rights. We, too, must be promoting the interests of our country. We, too, must be fighting for the liberties of our nation. Back in 1903, uh, George Bernard Shaw said, Liberty means responsibility. That is why most men dread it. I think that's a profound, profound statement. He said, liberty means responsibility. That is why most men dread it. 
But to dread the dangers of liberty is to do exactly what the Israelites did under the time of Moses when they're constantly wanting to go back to Egypt. They preferred slavery. They preferred the abuses they received in Egypt to the dangers they were facing now. They thought, well, at least in Egypt, we had a meal that we could count on every day. We had economic security. We were taken care of. We didn't have to fight any battles. They fought it for us. Uh, we, did, we knew what every day was going to bring. They wanted security. They had a slave mentality. And unfortunately, many Christians today have this same slave mentality and they want the civil government to do everything for them from education all the way through, you know, to welfare. But Christians, according to the Bible, have been delivered, delivered from slavery by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's admonition is to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He even commanded slaves. He said, if you can't get free, don't sweat it. But if you can get free, you must get free. Christians must opt for maturity. And slavery is immaturity. It is not maturity. And so all bondage should be hated like the plague. Whether it is bondage to sin or bondage to legalism whether it is bondage to economic debt, financial debt, or whether it is bondage to tyranny. We must hate it with a passion and do everything that we can to oppose it. If liberty means responsibility, then we should embrace it gladly. Please, brothers and sisters, be patriots for the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the challenge that it gives to us, taking us out of our comfort zone making us realize that we have issues that we have to deal with even in the society that is around us. Help us, Father, to not be cowards in the face of pressures that come to us. Help us, Father, to have the backbone that Paul had in asserting civil rights in our nation and promoting the liberties which have fast been eroding. Uh, Father, I pray that You would raise up godly men uh, in our nation who would completely revamp and restructure the horrible justice system and uh, bring back a, a justice system that would work. Uh, Father, I pray that You would be pleased to raise up into positions of magistrates, whether it's on the local level or on the national level, uh, men uh, who fear You, uh, who love Your law of liberty, and who are determined uh, to protect the liberties of their citizens. I pray, Father, that uh, all of the pandering to, uh, to uh, citizen interests and all of the citizen uh, uh, self-interests uh, that are driving politics today would be abolished, that You would open the minds of the citizens and magistrates alike and help us to see things as You see them. Father, restore the great republic of America, which we don't want to idolatrize in any way. The America of the past had many problems, but I pray that You would restore it and help our nation to go beyond where America's ever been before to become more biblical and that we might be a light set on a hill as our America's founding fathers and the early Puritans and pilgrims so longed to be, that others could repair to, others could look at us and see it as a model. Right now, Father, we're exporting humanism to every nation in the world and it grieves us to see this. And I pray, Father, that the other nations of this world would recognize the stench that is coming from this country, would reject it and opt for biblical republic. Father, be glorified. And I pray in every area of life, 
It's Your glory that we seek. Strengthen us, Your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.